It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist L. Joy Williams, and I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. So we are on the eve of MLK Day 2022, a day this country has dedicated to service and the commemoration of the life of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And yet we are also (laughs) fighting for voting rights legislation with no deal, no majority, no bipartisanship in sight. One of the cornerstones of the modern civil rights movement has been the fight for the right to vote and protections against any attempts, whether they are intentional or unintentional, that would restrict the voting franchise in any way. There have been many battles for that right, beginning during the age of Reconstruction all the way to the present. People of African descent, women and other marginalized groups have had to fight tooth and nail for voting rights and continue to have to fight to preserve it. So those who fought for the vote knew that it was tied to our ability to have more than a voice in our republic. The vote gave us the ability to chart our own destiny, empower and protect our communities and elect ourselves or representatives who shared our values. The right to vote is tied to economic prosperity, community empowerment, public education, healthcare, justice, war, (laughs) and our individual pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. So, What's the latest on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the Freedom to Vote Act in the Senate? Well, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that the Senate is postponing recess and will vote on voting rights bills that passed the House last week. They'll be voting on them on Tuesday. So tomorrow, MLK Day, and Tuesday are our next day of actions. So I want you to grab your calendar. Take a look at your calendar for Monday and Tuesday. And I want you to block off time both days because I need you to take action on these days. You're going to call your senators. You're going to contact them on social media. If you can, you're going to pick it in front of their district office. You're going to have your kids call, your students call, your church member calls, your friends call, your family call. Like even that like girl or that dude that you kind of seeing or dating right now, text them too and tell them you need them to take action on voting rights. (laughs) And you know, something unconventional, but could be effective. Look up who donates to your senators and contact them, particularly if they own large institutions or companies in your district. You know, they're the biggest employer. They contribute to the senator. Call a corporate office on Tuesday. Call a corporate office and ask, it was like you are a contributor or call the individual and say you are a contributor to this senator. Have you taken an action and made a call to the senator about voting rights? I don't know. Just everybody needs smoke at this moment. Everybody needs smoke. It can all make a difference. And if you're listening right now, 
like I said, you're going to put some time on your calendar and you're going to invite your friends. This is a small sacrifice compared to the hunger strike that Brother Joe Madison is doing right now, the daily protests and actions that voting rights activists are doing all across the country and they have been doing and will continue to do so. Black Women's Roundtable, Black Voters Matter, NAACP, individual activists that I won't get into naming, but here is where we put our lessons into action. I want you to make your plan to take action right now and get others to join you. So for today's show, we're going to do a lesson review, a look back to the lessons and conversation we have had once before on voting rights in the context of where we are today. Remember when I told you that we don't have a constitutional right to vote? and that who is eligible to vote and the way you vote is based upon the state that you live in. So we had that conversation with my social justice auntie, Barbara Arnwine, who's the founder and president of the Transformative Justice Coalition. That's one of the other organizations that are out here, individuals that are out here doing the work. And when we come back, we're gonna revisit that conversation, but I'm not done with your calendar. (laughs) So after that conversation, when we come back, I'm gonna give you more things to do because we need to take action on MLK Day and on Tuesday as well. We'll be right back. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the Tisha, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the Tisha? I go let you know. Who hey is there, the friends. I have a question for you. What was your first civic action? Most describe their first civic action as registering to vote. But I bet if you think about it a little more, you took your first civic action long before then. Here at Sunday Civics, we believe in the great power of storytelling. So I want you to share your story and inspire someone else to take civic action. Share your story on our website at sundaycivics.org. But if you need a little bit of inspiration, check this out. Hi, my name is Barbara Arnwine. I am the president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition, which is a racial, gender, economic, and environmental justice organization. And that organization has a strong focus on voting rights. That takes me back to my first civic engagement. My first civic engagement was walking with my mother to the polling place and actually watching her vote and her telling me the importance of voting. And even at 86 years old, she still treats voting day, election day, primaries, whatever it is, local elections, gubernatorial elections, presidential, she still treats it like a holiday. It's so important to her. So that made me conscious of the fact that I needed to be a voter. Now, when I was first in college, I really didn't feel like I should be a voter because I didn't feel uh, part of the community, which is a mistake many college uh, students still make. But I realized after watching the debacle of President Nixon, and I saw what he did to our country, I realized that I really needed to be a voter. I couldn't vote in 1968, but I could vote in 72. And I cast my first ballot, and I was disappointed that my candidate didn't win, but I realized the criticality of voting. 
and I have voted every since, and I am you know, proud to be a voter. I think it's just the most important exercise of citizenship that a person has, and that's why I'm so upset about the current state of voting in our nation. All right, so today's lesson. You don't have a constitutional right to vote. <gasps> so you may be thinking to yourself that this can't possibly be true, but I assure you that it is. There are six amendments to the Constitution related to voting, but to be clear, there is no affirming amendment giving citizens a right to vote. The right to vote is granted by the states, and it is the reason why there are different rules in each state for voting eligibility. And again, if you don't believe me, you can go to the Supreme Court justices who in the Bush v. Gore case where the majority wrote the following, the individual citizen has no federal constitutional right to vote for electors for the president of the United States. Now, Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution gives the states the power to determine voter eligibility, and that's why it's even more important than participating in presidential elections mm -hmm. for you to participate in your local um, and state elections. What does your state constitution say about the right to vote? Did your state legislator legislatures pass laws requiring ID to vote? What voting system does your state use and who's in charge of elections in your state? These are questions that are extremely important and have a direct impact on your ability to vote on election day. Now, some states make voter registration easy. You can register online in some of those states, at the DMV, at social services. Um, and there are some states that are actually passing or pushing for automatic voter registration. And so while there are states passing laws to make it easier to vote, there are also, which we talked about, states making it harder to not only register, but making it even harder to actually come out and vote. We see this attack on our right to vote with the president's sham of a commission mm -hmm. on voting uh -huh. and the daily onslaught of changes and voter purges happen across the country. All of this happening at a time when we should be focusing on registering more Americans to vote and increasing turnout. A recent report from Pew Charitable Trust found that just over 60% of adult citizens have ever been asked to vote. Wow. Only 10% were asked by a family member, and 7% were asked by their school, and 18% were asked at the DMV um, or some other government uh, office. And that is why the work of Septima Clark through the citizenship or freedom schools were so important. They understood the Constitution. They understood that it was the individual states that were responsible for determining voting rights. And also that after you have the right to vote, you need to understand how your local government works in order to protect yourself, That's right. mm -hmm. protect your property, mm -hmm. educate your children, and overall be an equal citizen in this country. They weren't just teaching people how to read, um, to pass a literacy test right to vote for the lesser of two evils mm. right they were learning how to read how to interpret the constitution how to register to vote and how to continue to have a voice in government so that other people weren't making decisions on their behalf or to their detriment it's also important to point out 
that during this time they knew that the laws were racist and discriminatory That's right. and yet they were devising ways to legally challenge those laws so they were going to court they were protesting and doing all that but at the same time they were teaching their own people how to navigate these racist and discriminatory laws and how to get around them mm-hmm. so while we're fighting against voter ID laws against gerrymandering about voterless purging right at mm-hmm. the same time that we're doing that um we need to uh uh in the spirit of mm-hmm. septima clark fannie mm-hmm. lou hamer and countless other organizers who we unfortunately won't know all of their names what they did during that time was to educate our people how to navigate those laws um and how to get around them how to pass the test mm. how to what whatever documentation they needed to bring mm-hmm. so that they can retain one aspect of their political voice which is the right to vote so in the spirit of septima clark and the citizenship schools that's why i created sunday civics mm. and it's in that spirit that i challenge all of you who are listening to get civically engaged right so it's not just about having the right to vote mm-hmm having the right to decide between, you know, these two people um, or three people that somebody else put up, right? Mm -hmm. They were teaching people how to be engaged at all levels of government and then how to have a say and when you have a say. So don't wait until the uh, election in November where somebody else already voted in the primary, where somebody else already um, voted maybe within the party to put up particular candidates, that they were teaching them how to be engaged on a daily basis. Mm. Barbara Arnwine is president and founder of the Transformative Justice Coalition. She is internationally renowned for contributions on critical justice issues, including the passage of the Landmark Civil Rights Act of 1991 and the reauthorization of provisions of the Voting Rights Act in 2006. I caught up with her while I was in D.C. this week for the Congressional Black Caucus annual legislative weekend, where she was training 30 millennials on voter protection and how to become voting rights activists. So thank you very much yes. for uh, talking with me. Um, I I love you, love you, love you. Yes, and um, I call you one of my my, my social justice aunties. Uh, <laughs> I write that. I tell people the shocking thing that you don't have a constitutional right to vote. And then they want to dispute you. Right. right. I say you don't have a constitutional right to vote. You have constitutional protections once you have the right to vote, but you don't have a constitutional right to vote. Explain that to people who try to shout me down. Well, it's slavery. When slave when the constitution was written, the whole concerns regarding what would be the new government of the United States of America had to do with whether or not slaves would have the, quote, slaves, the enslaved Africans, would have the right to vote. So that's how you ended up with the three-fifths clause, the electoral college. All of that was done to try to negate the right of people of color, especially Africans, enslaved Africans, to have a say over the electorate. Because we were so numerous, remember, we were the majority population in many states, North Carolina, Virginia, all kinds of states. So people worried about our having the right to vote. So one thing they did that made zero sense is they gave most of the control for the administration of elections to the states. 
each state gets to decide what the state laws are and who gets to vote in their state. And which is amazing when you think about it. So there really is no direct federal law that says, as we saw in Bush versus Gore decision of the Supreme Court, that says that a citizen of the United States has a right to vote for president. That law, those laws are very problematic, but it does say that nobody can deny you the right to vote because of your race, because you're because of the thirteenth, uh, I mean, because of the fifteenth amendment, we can't deny you because of your race, because of the nineteenth amendment, because of your gender. But as we all know, that even with those amendments, encumbrances were placed and obstacles were placed in the way of the right to vote that resulted in the nineteen sixty-five Civil Rights Act being passed before African Americans really had the right to vote and. I can just go on through all the other racial groups that have been blocked in different ways and all the years it's taken for everyone to be able to vote. Uh, and we still have issues, but people get confused. They think that I'm a citizen and I naturally have the right to vote. You should, but under our Constitution, there is no direct right to vote for president. And it all goes back to slavery. Everything, Everything in the United States goes back to slavery. And nobody slavery. wants to deal with it. Everything goes back to slavery. And and class. And class. And yes. class. You know, because, you know, it's not only racism, but it's right. also classism. Because this new government, this new entity that everyone wanted to, you yes. know, that the founders wanted to set up, who they had in mind was not only not people of color. Right. It also wasn't the general That's every right. man. That's right. And, you know, it took the Jacksonian uh, revolution, in essence. And, you know, as bad as Jackson was, let's face it, Andrew Jackson was horrible. He was a, a racist to the maximum degree. He was genocidal. He, was, he killed so many Native Americans. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about it. But he really looked at his power not in the elite property white men, of his era, but in the lower class of property, people who were clamoring for a place in the society, and also the people he relied on to get voted. So, so that's why they still talk about Jacksonian democracy, right, in mm. our nation, because of his push to make sure that these land requirements and all these property requirements and all of these other barriers to lower class white men were removed. So we fast forward to now, yes. where we don't have in place a uh, voting rights act or an enforceable. Um, well, we got a bad Supreme Court, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, amendment. Um, yes. And what does that mean to not have uh, Section Five? What does it mean now um, for us? And what's at what's what's in danger by not having the Voting Rights Act um, fully in place? Well, the beauty of the Voting Rights Act was that when it was enacted, it took away a lot of the barriers. People have been li using literacy tests, uh, you know, to recite the full Constitution by word for word, comma for comma, and have been bearing, barring people from voting because of their inability to do so. And then when people were good at it, they came up with other excuses, such as grandfather clauses. If your grandfather could vote, then you could vote. If your grandfather couldn't vote, then you 
weren't entitled to vote. They had everything from what they called intellectual tests, uh, such as uh, look at this bottle, this jar, and tell us how many uh, balls are in the marbles are in the jar, or how many bubbles are in a bar of soap. All of these, you know, nothing but measurements that were created and obstacles and devices to keep people from voting. And so when the Voting Rights Act was passed, it said none of that was legal. That was the first thing it did. It just took all of that out the way. It said you can't do that. It also said that you had to give people equal rights to participate in the franchise, uh, which you know kind of was one of the first real federalizations of the right to vote in that respect following the 15th Amendment because it enforced the 15th Amendment. But sadly, what is, and, and because so many states had at that point, at the point of this enactment, had for over a hundred years been denying blacks the right to vote, because of that, it built Section 5. And Section 5 said states which have a history of denying the vote had to pre-clear any voting change any voting practice, any voting procedure to make sure that it was not discriminatory and that it wasn't racially discriminatory. Well, the states hated it because they had to comply. And during the time, the courts kept striking down this law and that law because they were discriminatory. And the states were chafing at the bit. And finally, they got the Supreme Court they wanted. And in 2013, the Bush Court, you could call it that, which was actually the Roberts Court, because he had put John Roberts on the, on the bench and made him uh, the Chief Justice. And John Roberts had been working for his entire career to destroy the Voting Rights Act. And what he did was he attacked Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act first and basically said that it was unconstitutional in a decision called Shelby versus Holder because it didn't give states the quote equal sovereignty of laws. Mind you, that notion, that doctrine did not exist for voting rights prior to his announcement. Hmm. It was an issue around taxation and an issue around admission to the union that had nothing to do with voting rights. And he just created a whole new doctrine in order to strike down Section 4B, which is the coverage formula that told people who in which states had to comply with Section 5. Mm. And once you don't have, you know, it's like they said, uh, my friend Elaine Jones said, you still had the, the car, but you had no keys. So we don't have the pre-clearance. So right. that means, you know, we're in Brooklyn, which was one of one of the congressional districts in Brooklyn was a pre-clearance yes, um, section. Um, certain districts well, in the South. 12,000 jurisdictions were covered. That included counties, local, local municipalities, nine states. So this was, uh, and people don't understand. They think it was all South. Well, listen, New York, has had a vicious history of racial discrimination in voting. So it was New York, it was parts of Chicago originally, parts of, Los, uh, parts of California that were all covered by this law, parts of Arizona. So people, you know, got to understand that it was really about looking at where these barriers to voting existed. I tell people often 
that yes, our ancestors died for the right to vote, but yes. it was more than that. Yes, it what they understood that the vote was tied to self-determination and um, empowerment. Yes. Right? So it wasn't just for our right to go in and vote for the two right. people random white folks put up. Right. But that we wanted to be able to elect ourselves. Absolutely. And, you know, decide yes or no on taxes and things like that so that it was participatory so that we could be engaged and have a voice in our own governance. Well, our ancestors, David Banner said it yesterday during our panel that we had, uh, because we had been doing this Millennial Votes Matters training, and we had a panel at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation uh, annual legislative caucus yes, conference yesterday, and David Banner said the same thing. He says, our ancestors didn't die for the right to vote, they died for us to have control over the governance structure that affected our lives. They died so we could dictate what the policies that affect our lives should be. Every time you get up in the morning and you don't like the fact that your trash hasn't been collected, then that's a governance problem that you ought to be, that you, your vote should be able to make sure that you have the right people on the city council or on the county commission to control that. If you don't like the schools and you think your schools aren't good enough, then your vote should be electing the right school board members. Make sure that they are giving you the best schools that their money, that the county's money can buy. If you don't like, you know, your hospitals, if you don't like the police, I mean, a lot of people are upset about the police right now. Who governs the police? No, it's not the police chief because the police chief is hired usually by the mayor, by the city council. Who you vote for has everything to do with that. So our ancestors, they understood that because they have been cut out. They have been denied those opportunities. And because of that denial, they strongly wanted to make sure that they had political power. Think about it, in 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was passed in this nation, in Alabama, less than 5% of all blacks were registered to vote. That is because of all these evil you know, tools and blockages and devices and barriers I described before. They understood that's why they had open sewage trenches in their community. They understood that's why they didn't have electricity and they were the last to get it. They understood that was why people were so uneducated because they didn't have and had horrible schools. They got the fact that their political power needed to be expressed. They died for us to have a better quality of life who fought for the right to vote. So what does our generation uh, and millennial generation. Yes. What do we do next in the fight for our power? Well, it's really important that we do two things. One is that we fight to make sure that our community's right to vote is protected. And that means that we have the fight to make sure that all these new barriers, all these new voter suppression laws are eliminate and we got to fight to be smart enough strategically to navigate around a whole lot of them and to be able to de-emphasize their negative effects. We also have to be powerful enough to make sure that we're running really good candidates. 
who stand for our policies. We've got to have a policy agenda that we believe in and that we're promoting. People think it's personality ticks. I like this person. That person looks like they're nice. That person looks, no, it's about what policy platform do they stand on? And that is the mistake people make all the time. They, they vote personality, they don't vote for policy. But ultimately, pol politics is about policy. And it's so important that we do that. Now, the millennial generation, guess what, millennials? You are right now, today, the largest eligible block of voters in the United States the largest eligible block of voters in the United States if you register, if you turn out and vote. You could actually be determining who is president, you could be determining who is the governor of your states, but what's happened is that we are still allowing the boomer generation to determine those things. If you take a graph, it's like mirror, mirror on the wall, and you look at those voters under 35 and voters over 60, you will see that they have almost the adverse notions of what good policy is on social, um, social, you know, justice issues, on uh, marriage uh, equality, on abortion, on uh, schooling, on educational benefits, on foreign policy, they come, it's a, just a totally radically different perspective. If the young people of this country were voting, we would have single payer. If the young people of this country were voting, we wouldn't have a Senate that looks the way it does, where you only have what, one black woman? One black man? There's no way that would be possible. You would have more women, you would have, uh, you know, women in our country are so underrepresented. African Americans, underrepresented. Latinos, underrepresented. Native Americans, underrepresented. All of these problems, if we voted, wouldn't exist. So millennials, you have the power. You have the convince your peers that they need to not only register, but they got to turn out. Registration means nothing if you don't turn out and vote. And they got to be educated to make sure that they're voting for those policies that really will be, make a difference, the best difference. So if somebody's saying, I'm upset because I, I can't go to college because my loan debt would be too long, large or I had to drop out of college because my loan debt was too large or I got out of college and I still owe $50,000, $100,000. That could be dealt with by the right people in office because if you've been watching, some states have even been passing laws saying you can have free community college. That's because they got the right people in office. So it's very, very, very important that you do the work that when you're thinking about, you're upset about people being deported because they're, they're dreamers and their parents brought them here and, uh, and they only know this country but now they've been sent back to a country they didn't know. That is, again, based on policy and who is making those decisions. So every time you vote, you're not just voting to put somebody in office, you're voting for all the policy that's attendant to that, including all the positions that people are gonna be making decisions on. We talked about the Supreme Court, the President of the United States, 
he nominates who is going to be a candidate for the and for a candidate for the Supreme Court, and then the Senate confirms or rejects that person. So you know these are the things that we don't think about. But politics is not just election day. Politics is 24/7, and if we had a greater notion of how politics affect our lives, then we really would see our vote as much more sacred and precious than we do. You mentioned that your first job was at the Board of Elections. Yes! <laughs> Isn't that something? My first job that I ever got, because I was one of those unusual people who went to college before I graduated from high school. So I never graduated from high school. To this day, I don't have a high school diploma, but because I, I was skipped uh, from uh, college, I mean from high school straight into college. So when I was in college, I needed a job, and nobody would hire me. But fortunately, the county board of, Ed of elections did not view my not having a high school diploma as a, an obstacle because they counted my college experience and I had just finished my freshman year of college. And so I worked for the Board of Elections and back then we didn't have computers, uh, so nothing was digitized. And we physically had to go through the election rolls and the books to try to eliminate duplicative it, uh, voter registrations. So somebody might have moved in the last year and just never and re-registered, but their old registration was still on the books. So we physically would go through and make sure those were the same voters, same name, same handwriting. We became handwriting experts. We learned so much about how to make sure that we were actually removing duplicates. And it was amazing just the thousands and thousands of duplicate registrations we would have to change then. Thank God for digitization. Thank God for uh, the new computers and all the ability that people now have to register in a different way. But that, at the same time, as Greg Pallas has said, that has created a new problem. And that is the problem of lynching by technology. Because a lot of votes are being now purged from the voter rolls using technology to say, well, these, this, these kind of voters are inactive, or these kind of voters don't deserve to you know, vote, and we're seeing thousands and thousands and thousands of people being eliminated from the rolls. So listen, everyone, this fight is our fight. This is not the older generation's fight. This is not the younger generation's fight. This is our fight. And what we got to do is make sure that everybody has the right to vote. I don't want to get up in the morning and read that health care, the American Care Act, is under threat again because the wrong people are sitting in office. When the American people, by a tremendous margin, say that we want to keep the ACA. Why do we have this delta between what these politicians want to do and what we want them to do? It's because we aren't electing the right people, because 
the voting uh, suppression is keeping people from voting so that it's not representative of our people and because we forget when we're voting for people to make sure they're right on our policies. So be policy driven, be involved in this fight, do everything you can to exercise your um, So a recent reporter, we talked about this earlier in the episode, um, says that 60, I think over 60% of people who are unregistered to vote say that there are no one ever asked them. Um, so on National Voter Registration Day, yes. talk about the importance of doing old-fashioned voter registration campaigns. Yes, you. We have been doing what we call a Millennial Votes Matters training event for the last three days, and it's been training young people in a nonpartisan way to be voting rights advocates. And we actually did a session today on voter registration, tactics and techniques. And one of the things we told people is that the most important question you could ask people when you go up to them is do you want your voter registration to be updated? And the person will either say, oh, I'm not registered, or the person will say, oh, I think I'm up to date. But you, it gives you the way to ask them without people being feeling bad that you're trying to say that they did something wrong or they did something right. Uh, you know, we want to make sure that people are registered to vote. Now, what I say, Joy, blows my mind about our American democracy. We don't make it easy for people to register to vote. We don't even make it easy for people to vote. Yet we castigate people when they don't vote. And what I'm always taken by is how weird, tell me where you see the billboards that say thank you for voting. Where do you see the sides on the buses, the side billboards that say thank you for being an engaged voter? Where do you see parties and awards given to people for engaging the political process? We don't affirm and celebrate voters. That's our problem as a nation. We got to change that around because voting is your most important civic obligation, but it's also something that you do that's great for this nation. You make the nation a better country because it's more reflective of all the people in the country when all the people are voting. So we need to do everything we can on Voter Registration Day, National Voter Registration Day, that is Tuesday, September the 26th, to make sure that we encourage everybody to vote, but we gotta keep encouraging people because you know what the saddest thing to me in the world is on election day when I see people coming to the polls wanting to vote, ready to vote, and shocked when they discover that they're not registered. And some people actually hit their heads and say, oh, I didn't know I needed to register in advance. Some people are like, oh, I thought I was registered. How, how could I not be registered? You know, so there's all kinds of things that happen. So it's so important right now, if you're listening, make sure you go out and you help everybody you know to become registered to vote. If they're unsure, tell them register. If they move recently, tell them they need to register again. Be sure to understand one thing. A lot of people only vote in presidential elections. That's a mistake. Because the most important elections are your local elections. Because that police chief is going to be a result of that mayor that you elect, that city council that you elect. 
your school boards, everything you care about every day has to do with those local elections. Get involved, vote every time you have an opportunity to vote. Don't say I'm only going to vote for the president. Don't say I'm only going to vote for senator. Vote for every single position. Make your vote count. We'll be right back. Demonstrate for me, not in detail, but generally, uh, what it was that uh, you taught these people and what it was they were expected to take back to their communities. We used the election laws of that particular state for, to teach the reading. Uh, we used the amount of fertilizer and the amount of seeds to teach the arithmetic, how much they would pay for it and the like. We did some um, uh, political work by having them to find out about the kind of government that they had in that particular community. And these were the things that we taught them when they went back home. Each state had to have its own particular reading because each state had different requirements for the election laws. Welcome, welcome back to Sunday Civics. What you just heard is a clip of one of my sheroes, September Clark, whose life is actually the inspiration for which I started Sunday Civics. She and many other black women use citizenship schools to teach literacy and civic and political education to African-Americans in the South so that they could pass literacy tests and any other Jim Crow era hoops to register and vote. And as I mentioned in the previous interview with Barbara Arnwan, while there was a federal strategy to challenge what individual states were doing to prohibit African-Americans from voting by advocating for the Civil Rights Act of 64, part of the strategy was also working in the states to challenge laws in the courts, but to also educate and prepare the community for participation and political action. We see this happening in modern times. Our good friends over at Spread the Vote and Pro Voter ID Project are helping people in states that require ID to vote, helping them to get the identification that they need so that they can register and vote. You can actually listen back to that conversation. I think it was episode 68, yeah, episode 68, and we had an interview with the founder of that organization, Kat Calvin, who's doing that work. So the strategy going forward, no matter what happens in Congress this week, is a three-pronged approach. It has always been, right? One, we continue to push for federal legislation, federal protection for people's right to vote. Two, we join the fight that is happening locally on the state level in terms of voting rights and voter protections as well. I'm sure there are organizations, NAACP, National Action Network, all of those others that may exist in your particular state that are also advocating whether challenging things legally or any local laws that exist. They are working on that in the state. They need your help. They need your focus on that as well. And then the third 
action is preparing your community to vote. Now, if you're saying like, I live in a state and voting is fine, <laughs> there is all the state election laws are in our favor and your state is fine, that's great. You can continue to action three and helping to prepare your community vote, or you can also join in fights in your neighboring state or where your parents live or your grandparents live or something like that, right? There's still more work to be done. And then, like I mentioned, that third action of preparing your community to vote. And it's going to be a hard one, right? Particularly if Congress doesn't pass this legislation to protect folks' uh, right to vote in the states where they are passing these laws or have already passed these laws, we're going to need all hands on deck in terms of, pre of preparing people to vote. And it's already going to be, for some people, they're going to feel deflated. Like, how? why do I vote? Why do I engage when people couldn't even protect my right to vote as well? That's why we need folks who understand the connection and the importance to actually educate, empower, register and get people to vote, right? So we need you. And I'll give you an example of here in New York. While we continue our advocacy for the federal legislation, the John Lewis Voter Rights Bill, the Freedom to Vote Act, here in New York, we have our own version of the Voting Rights Act that's actually pending in our state legislature that no matter what happens on the federal level, we would have voter protections here in the state of New York. It's the New York State John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and it would ensure that the law stands on the side of the voter. It strengthens laws to prevent voter intimidation. It ensures that no matter what language a voter speaks or reads, that they have the tools necessary to vote and participate in the election. And it will also give the New York State Attorney General the authority to pre-clear any proposed changes to election rules to continue to protect voters' rights. And that's a huge piece, right? Because you listened to Barbara Arnwine before about taking out the pre-clearance um, provision. And so here in New York State, if we pass this law, we would have our own pre-clearance. And that's important because people think of New York State as uh, progressive because most people think of New York State as New York City. But he, even here in New York City, we have had challenges. A couple of years ago, there was voting purges here in Brooklyn where people's names got purged off of the voting rolls. During the pandemic, they moved polling sites and notified people by mail and they sent the mail like two days before the election. In other places across the store in Western New York and um, upstate New York where they would have limited early vote hours. So all of these things matter even to what people view as a progressive state here in New York. So for those of you who are in New York, you can not only take action on federal voting rights, but you can take civic action on the New York State voting rights legislation. You can call your state senator and your assembly member and tell them to take action because believe it or not, not everyone in the assembly and the Senate is signed on as a co-sponsor to this legislation and it hasn't been called yet. It hasn't been voted on yet, all right? So this is something that we can take action here in the state of New York. So we need to fight back against all attempts 
on the federal level, on the state level, on a local level to restrict who gets to have a say in our government and make sure that, you know, we embody the true defenders of democracy by pushing Congress, by pushing our state legislatures, by organizing and preparing our community to engage our folks to vote. And it's not just, let me stop you right now, before you go off and like whatever happens this week and you're gonna tell people we gotta vote like a, and, and just focus on vote. We have to educate, register, and prepare our community, right? It's not just go zero to 100 where you're telling people, you know, vote or die or, you know, telling people, not talking to them until like a week before election day or any of that. Churches who are trying to redefine their role in community as people are, some people are still virtual, here is a way to engage community, right? Start now in terms of preparing for voting. You're thinking about what you can do with your building, contact the Board of Elections, see if you could be your early vote site. Contact the State Board of Elections and see if you could do the uh, training for the poll workers can be at the church if you're worried about an empty building right now. You can contact National Action Network, NAACP, all of these other groups about having these conversations in your virtual service, adding a community component to the end of service about preparing and engaging people in this work. This is when we take what we have been hearing on Sunday Civics, these lessons that we've listened to in this classroom every Sunday. It's time to put these lessons into practice. And whether or not that is helping to prepare a community, educate a community, register a community, get people ID, whatever the laws are in your state, if those are going to stand, I need you to figure out what those laws are so that you can help educate and translate to people in your community and help them get the necessary resources. Because chances are, if somebody needs an ID to vote, that means that they haven't had ID or any any identification, other things that they need for their daily life. So why not help it? Why can't your church help it? Why can't your, you know, civic group help and participate in that action? Three-pronged approach. Continue advocacy on the federal level. Continue advocacy on the state level. Educating our communities about what's happening. That is the work right? Those, that is the reason why you are listening to this show is not only for you to get educated, but for you to take this lesson, take this education back to all of the other communities um, that you are a part of. And like I said earlier, you know, you're going to text your friends, your girlfriends and your family and everything, not in November, not whenever your primary is, you can start doing that now and getting people in the practice of getting their voter education, their civic education, and even that girl, that dude that you text and that you talking to, <laughs> you need to get them all involved because if civic action is an important part of your life, right, I would assume that for your partner, you want it to be an important part of their life too. So, That's all I have for you today. I'm going to be continuing to take civic action on Monday and Tuesday, actually every day. Thank you so very much for joining us here on Sunday Civics. We'll be back next Sunday. We have some great, great, great guests coming up on Sunday Civics. We're gonna talk about juvenile justice. We have a conversation about children don't belong in cages. We're gonna talk with the author of this new book called The End of Policing. You ever wonder, 
why I use Eljoy Williams, why I use the initial and then my name. We're actually gonna have the one of the people who's the inspiration for me using an initial for my first name. She's going to be on C. Virginia Fields. Debbie Archer, who's written just so much. She is the now president of ACLU, but her work, her body of work, I mean, I wanna talk to her about so much. So stay tuned. We have shows booked, uh, guests booked through February, and we need you to be in this classroom so you can take this information back to your community. Have a great one and remember to take civic action this week. Oh, it's cool.